0: Hello and welcome to this EMG Health Podcast. For this episode, we will look at the role of precision medicine in prostate cancer. The focus will be on the recent updated European Association of Urology or EAU guidelines on prostate cancer. This podcast is supported by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individual speaker, and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. To discuss this today, I'm joined by Professor Henrik Kronberg, a professor and senior physician at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. Professor Gronberg has worked in oncology for over 30 years and heads the Prostate Cancer Centre in kapios saint Hospital in Stockholm. He has published around 400 peer review articles in international scientific journals and is currently PI overseeing several clinical trials evaluating new prostate cancer diagnostic tests. He was also recently named Cancer Researcher of the Year by the Swedish Cancer Society. Henrik, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So, while for this podcast we will mainly focus on the challenges of metastatic prostate cancer, I suppose we need to briefly discuss the challenges of diagnosing primary prostate cancer So we're really lacking an adequate screening tool, and blanket application of prostate-specific antigen, or PSA, is definitely believed to have caused more harm than benefit at a population level. Can you expand on the difficulties and challenges faced by clinicians and patients in diagnosing prostate cancer?
1: Yes. So uh, prostate cancer is, uh, as you know, the most common cancer among males uh, in the Western uh, countries. And... um, it's a cancer that doesn't give any symptoms until it's too late. So it's very important for that you actually diagnose it early. And we've been having the PSA, uh, the prostate specific antigen test for 30, 35 years. Um, it will diagnose prostate cancer. However, it will also diagnose uh, cancers that never will uh, do any harm. So you have overdiagnosis, overtreatment. Now we have new tools that we didn't have uh, like five years ago. Uh, the two things that happened is that we have better uh, blood tests uh, than PSA. Uh, one example is the Stockholm 3 test that we developed here, which is a combination of both protein biomarkers and genetic markers. Um, and then also you have uh, a MRI, a magnetic uh, uh, camera, that actually is uh, very good to localise uh, the cancer uh, in the prostate. So with these two new tools, you have a much better uh, toolbox compared to earlier. And I think that a lot of countries will um, look through and see if they uh, should uh, introduce more uh, organized prostate cancer uh, testing and screening. Uh, I know that's uh, that's an ongoing debate in the Nordic countries. And the problem is if you find prostate cancer too late, uh, there is no cure. So here the really important thing is to find them early.
0: I suppose that's the key isn't it like it's the finding early before it develops and it's it's we're getting closer to getting there better I suppose. Yes I mean
1: it's really the key thing here you need to find them early before they have symptoms. That's the key thing.
0: So I suppose let's look then at the recently updated international prostate cancer guidelines. Let's talk about precision medicine. Why is it that precision medicine is important in prostate cancer? And what does it say in the guidelines about precision medicine?
1: So I think that precision medicine will be more and more important when it comes to treatment of men with metastatic prostate cancer. Um, 10 years ago, we only had one or two options uh, to treat these men, but now we have six, seven different uh, uh, drugs or treatments to choose from. And then the key question will uh, be which one to choose first and then second and third. And of course, that will be different for different persons. And this is where precision medicine or individualized medicine will come into play. If you look at the EAU uh, guidelines, there is two uh, important uh, parts where you can actually find uh, biomarkers for prostate cancer. One is germline uh, mutations, that is inherited uh, mutations that give rise to what you call inherited uh, cancer syndromes. One example, I mean, two examples are the BRCA1 and BRCA2 uh, mutations. That was identified more than 30 years ago uh, and has shown uh, an increased risk, uh, mainly for breast and ovarian cancer. But particularly BRCA2 has also shown a very importance for prostate cancer. If you have a germline uh, BRCA2 mutation, uh, you have a much more uh, aggressive disease. Uh, and uh, there, uh, that is important both for your own treatment, but also for the family, of course, for genetic counselling. Uh, so I think these are these are key things that uh, you should know that uh, finding germline uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations uh, are important in prostate cancer cases, and uh, the incidence or the the prevalence of BRCA2 mutation, particularly in uh, prostate cancer ca- uh, patients, varies from country to country. Uh, for example, in the UK and the US, uh, the incidence are higher than in the Nordic countries where BRCA2 mutations are less common. Uh, but still, somewhere between 1 to 3% of men with metastatic prostate cancer have germline uh, mutations in these genes. First, I talked about germline genetic variants, so that's inherited mutations. Uh, but then you go into somatic mutations, which are, are mutations or genetic uh, rearrangements that occur in the in the tumour. And those are much more common. I mean, all prostate cancer uh, tumors have somatic mutations. And I think the two uh, main examples today when it comes to precision medicine in prostate cancer are uh, mutations in the DRD genes, uh, the DNA repair genes. Uh, And of course, if you have mutations there, um, there are data that you uh, are responding better to PARP inhibitors or carboplatin. And I think that's been been, uh, used now for uh, some years in other cancers like ovarian cancer and breast cancer, and will emerge uh, also in prostate cancer here uh, uh, in uh, in Europe. The second example I would say is what we call MSI positive, that's uh, microsatellite instability. That's been a, a key feature for inherited colorectal cancer for at least 25 years. But now it's also been recognised that between 3 and 4% of men with metastatic prostate cancer also have MSI-positive tumours. And these men most likely uh, will uh, respond to immunotherapy much better uh, than to other treatments that we have available today. So I think these are two examples uh, today where we can use uh, precision medicine or a genomic marker for uh, uh, finding better treatment for our patients
0: think that clinicians and patients have enough awareness about precision medicine and and how can we increase the awareness amongst patients and clinicians to the, I suppose, the opportunities available through precision medicine?
1: I think the, I mean, most clinicians and uh, uh, patients do not know this in detail. I think that there will be a massive need for uh, education. Um, And I think this will need to come pretty quickly because now we have, for example, two examples in in prostate cancer, but I would guess in three to five years, we have five or ten different examples. And then the clinicians particularly need to uh, know how and when to use these uh, new biomarkers for uh, uh,
0: treatment decision. So you've really mentioned there the benefits of precision medicine. But I suppose this requires testing. So how and when should people be tested? At which point do you decide to test somebody?
1: I think there is two ways of looking at this. First, I mean, what's the availability of testing uh, in Europe today when it comes to uh, precision medicine? And I know it varies widely uh, in different countries. For example, in Sweden, we don't have much uh, availability for DRD testing uh, for POP inhibitors or carboplatin. Uh, But in other countries, it is much more uh, developed. So this needs to be developed, because if you don't have availability to test, uh, then you you cannot do it. So I think that's one key thing. The second thing is, um, you think about cost for testing. And for me, uh, that's a no brainer, because I mean, testing will always cost less than the drugs. So I think a good testing uh, and a good testing scheme will always be beneficial, both for patient and healthcare.
0: Uh, and who particularly should be tested? Which Is there particular classes of men who we should be considering testing more than others?
1: Well, if you look at the EAU guidelines, they point out some men, um, particularly those with uh, metastatic prostate cancer, those with a family history of, of uh, cancer or very early aggressive uh, diagnosis. Um, But uh, to be honest with you, I think it will be difficult to pinpoint a specific group of men with metastatic that are more prone to testing than others. I think that you should probably test all your patients if you uh, have a testing scheme. I think it'd be difficult to select uh, the one you should test.
0: And I suppose, as you're saying there, the, the cost of testing is much, much less than the cost of drugs so you can save yourself a lot of money in the long run and it's that overall bigger picture of health economics
1: yeah and i think that's that's one of the problems we have in healthcare today that um the cost for for drugs or uh, is one pocket and the uh, the cost for testing is another pocket
0: and what are the guidelines telling us about what biological material should be testing should we be looking at blood should we be looking at uh, you know, uh, biopsy? And what are the types of genetic testing that we should be doing on patients?
1: So I think you should test what is available uh, for testing here in your country. Um, the three different uh, things that you, you can test, one is, of course, is blood. When it comes to germline genetic testing, then you take the blood cells and do uh, genetic testing of uh, inherited uh, mutations. You can take tissue, uh, which uh, is, a, is a good source of getting the somatic mutations. Uh, uh, and, um, and I think for most patients, there will be a biopsy uh, material, particularly from the diagnostic biopsies. Uh, but sometimes the diagnostic biopsies could be 5 to 10 years old, and then the quality is less good. Um, and then you can, you can think about doing uh, a biopsy uh, from the metastases. But I think the the most promising way to do genetic testing is probably using uh, CT DNA, uh, circulating tumor DNA, what you call a liquid biopsy. Uh, And this is a technique that's developed the last five, six years. Uh, And then you can just by a blood test, uh, take the plasma out and then take out small, small DNA strands that comes from the tumor and do somatic testing uh, on just the blood uh, test. This is commercially available today. Uh, But I think it it needs to be validated and developed. But I foresee in two to three years, uh, the only thing we will uh, use is ctDNA liquid biopsies.
0: And you've used ctDNA quite a bit in your own clinical research. What's been your experience with it? Why do you think the potential lies for it?
1: The potential is, of course, it's very simple to take uh, a blood test or a blood sample. Uh, but you also, what you do when you take it, you get a very good uh, snapshot of what the uh, ge- somatic mutations are at that time, because they can actually change over time. So if there is, let's say, five years between the private diagnostics and you have treatments, and then you develop metastatic disease, your somatic uh, uh, landscape will change. So ctDNA is a much better snapshot of what it looks like today. The second thing is that we have between 80 and 90 percent of the patients that uh, we do ctDNA testing on actually have a positive results. So I mean that we actually can do uh, a biomarker uh, analysis on and I think that's much higher than if you go for tissue.
0: So do you think then the use of ctDNA then has the potential to be really something that we monitor with patients to see that we're getting our treatment strategies correct and also help us decide if maybe a drug isn't working and to try another approach.
1: Yes, I think I mean, it has the potential of not only uh, telling which drug to use at which patient, but also uh, evaluate if it works. Um, there are preliminary uh, results now um, from other groups, and our, uh, our group also, that CTD uh, dynamics after one to two months could be a very important biomarker uh, analysis to see if a treatment works or not. And, and that would be fantastic from an oncology perspective if you only after one or two months could say this treatment doesn't work for you. We need to uh, do something else. Um, I think that will have major impact on the ability to treat patient better. And particularly, uh, do not treat patient with a drug that doesn't work uh, because that's that's what we do, uh, do today in, in actually many patients.
0: Yes, it will certainly make the... Um trial and error approach sometimes that has to be done with medicine that is this working with this patient no let's try something else it might make that a lot easier and also reduce the side effects with patients which is a huge key for better patient outcomes as i
1: usually say i mean uh, giving a drug that doesn't work uh, to a patient um, has no benefit for anyone Uh, the patient has side effects the healthcare it costs more money um, and it actually uh, creates a lot of negative things uh, in a society.
0: I guess not just in terms of testing patients who come through the door with metastatic cancer. We've known for a long time that women with BRCA genes are at an elevated risk of breast cancer. So how can we increase awareness regarding the important need for germline testing in the context of prostate cancer? And then particularly, I suppose, where there's a family risk of cancer?
1: I think there are guidelines today that, I mean, if you have a strong family history of prostate cancer, um, that you could consider BRCA1 or BRCA2 testing, particularly BRCA2 testing. However, I think it's very difficult to, uh, if you have a man with uh, newly diagnosed low-class cancer, to say which one to test. Um, and particularly in countries where there is a low prevalence of BRCA2 mutations. Of course, if you, if you have a known BRCA2 mutation in the family, of course, you should test that patient. And if you have a very strong family history of breast ovarian cancer and early uh, onset prostate cancer, you should test that patient. But from going there uh, to find um, the BRCA2 uh, mutations in other patients, it's going to be difficult. Uh, however, if the BRCA2 mutation, BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutation germline screening will be very cheap, I mean, let's say 100 euros, uh, then I think it, it, it makes sense to test everyone.
0: And I suppose moving on from BRCA, what are the other sort of commonly susceptible loci that people maybe could be considering in terms of germline testing?
1: I think there are associations with also other uh, cancer uh, syndromes like the Lynch syndromes, uh, hereditary colore- uh, colorectal cancer. However, it's very uncommon. I think it's it we will never test for that. Uh, there are other genetic, I mean, germline uh, markers like ATM, uh, HOXB13, uh, CHECK2, that's been associated with uh, prostate cancer. Uh, uh, it's, not the, it's not a highly penetrant genes like the BRCA2, but we call them moderate penetrant genes, which increase the risk to two to three times. Uh, I think that, at least in, in no guidelines, there has been a conclusive statement how to use these uh, biomarkers in a good way. And the third uh, type of genetic marker is what we call uh, low-penetrant genes, which we call SNPs, single nucle- nucleotide uh, polymorphism. And that's what we use in the Stockholm 3 test. Uh, we combined 110 SNPs into genetic score. That gives a very good uh, what call a picture of uh, the genetic susceptibility of prostate cancer for a single man and that's used in combination with other markers is it's one way of using uh, genetic markers today.
0: And I suppose clinicians shouldn't just blindly check germ lines what conversations should clinicians have with their patients when discussing the need for genetic testing? I think
1: this is different in country from country. Uh, in Sweden, for example, we do not need uh, a genetic counselor, and this is up to the uh, medical oncologist to do this. And I think we are very used to that. Um, in other countries like the UK, uh, there is a need, uh, they say there's a need for genetic counseling before you do the uh, germline yeah. testing. Um, but in, in my view, I think that's... Uh, little bit overkill if you put it like that. It's it's actually put too much because then you have to uh, genetic counseling uh, 98 men to find one or two uh, mutations and that's not cost effective. So I think it's I mean if you what, what I do with my patients is saying that we're going to test you for BRCA1 and BRCA2 and in one to two percent we will find something and that will have importance for both you and your family but in most men it's negative so we don't do so and I think most men will accept that.
0: So let's look towards the future now. Do you have hope that we will get better at detecting prostate cancer selectively and improve the outcomes for men who have been diagnosed?
1: I, I, I think there is a very bright future for this field, actually. I, I usually when I have my talks, I say that we have a decreased mortality of about 50% the last 25 years of prostate cancer. And I think with um, systematic testing, uh, screening programmes, Um, and good treatment up front. Uh, Probably we will decrease it with another 50%. So I think today we actually have the tools uh, to be able to do this. Uh, Unfortunately, we will not save everyone and we will come to a situation where we need to treat men with metastatic prostate cancer. And I foresee in three to five years that um, genetic testing, genomic testing will be a standard of care for everyone because we have perhaps seven or ten different options uh, to treat these men Uh, and to be able to do that uh, systematically in a good way. We need uh, treatment predictive biomarkers.
0: So it's interesting there, we talked about how CT DNA has a potential maybe for being used for treat to target approaches. Why are we still lacking biomarkers that will help us figure out who's going to respond well to treatment?
1: I think the key thing that is lacking is actually treatment predictive biomarkers uh, that uh, can predict if a patient responds to treatment or not. And I think here both the uh, academia and um, industry has a big responsibility to to, do trials that really evaluate this uh, prospectively. And I think that's perhaps been lacking in uh, before, but I think there's been an awakening that you cannot find treatment-predicted uh, biomarkers if you don't uh, have the right study design. Um, and I think I've seen examples, uh, positive examples, on this uh, the last uh, two, year, uh, uh, two to three years. However, I think we need to uh, intensify this and actually look at more innovative uh, study designs like the platform designs when you have one standard of care and uh, six or seven different treatments that you select from uh, a biomarker perspective. I think that will give you a much broader view, not only looking at one biomarker at a time, but several. I think that will be uh, the future.
0: Thanks so much, Professor Gronberg, for this really informative discussion around the potential for precision medicine in the management and treatment of prostate cancer. As the second most commonly diagnosed cancer in men, there is a whole host of patients who could really benefit from Not just earlier diagnosis, but better risk stratification tools and more personalised approaches to their treatment. You know, it's really interesting now that we have the ability to do more genetic testing and with time that should help us really tailor the treatment that we're able to offer to patients. So that's all for this episode of the EMG Health Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our archives for more episodes, just like this one. Also, make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we release new EMG podcasts all the time. Until next time, take care, stay safe, and goodbye for now.